Hey! Oh ho, ho ho! It's Christmas that is around our throats again. And thank you so much for all your emails asking me to get better. Incredibly sweet of you to write. I, it's, it's weird, you know, you kind of don't want to talk about your own personal illnesses in public, really. But when you're running a one, you know, two person machine and one of you is really sick, you don't really have a choice but to tell people, <laughs> you know, it's not like another institution where you are, you know, you can just kind of duck for a week and other people will take their weight. You have to kind of tell people. So I, I apologize for all the TMI, which will be the first time I've done that. But <laughs> um, uh, I'm getting better. You can probably hear it in my lungs. It's just, it had a weird week of, you know, they put you on this thing called prednisone steroid, which is an absolutely wonderful drug. If you ever had asthma, it kind of relaxes your lungs and allows them to breathe. But it also gives you this kind of weird, jittery, constantly wired feeling that means that you can't really sleep very well. They're constantly tossing and turning, which of course doesn't help. Anyway, I am struggling through. It's been a bit of a blur, but I'm going to get through Christmas, collapse, and then we'll be back in the new year. But I wanted to end this year on a special note because it's been a really fascinating year in terms of history, in terms of what we've learned. And I was thinking, who do I want to really talk all this over with? In a, in a... Anyway, I thought of my old friend, Joe Klein. I can't believe we haven't had you on yet, Joe, but he's here this week. And Joe is a legend, really, for me anyway. He's a, an old friend, he's a journalist, old school blogger, actually, and a journalist of many decades of work. He's, he's a really multiply talented person as much as he's both a great dogged reporter but also has an ability to write about ideas and history in ways that I think are really compelling and he's he's got a great sense for human beings too his sources in the military in the democratic party the national security establishment really amazing and he's just a wonderful good old liberal we used to joke that we, we're the only two members of the same political party, <laughs> and we would make this joke every time we got together and then moan the fact that there are no more members and none likely to join, which is fine. Anyway, you may probably most famous for, of course, the novel Primary Colors, the brilliant expose, really, of everything Bill Clinton. He was a longtime columnist for Time. Now, like all the cool peeps, he's on Substack with a really wonderful Substack called Sanity Clause. I really recommend you go read, subscribe. Just a quick note for the new year. We have Carol Hooven coming on. You know, she came on before to talk about her really fascinating book called Testosterone. Now she's coming back on to talk about what she's gone through at Harvard, how she was hounded out of her teaching position before teaching what she regarded to be simply the scientific facts. We have Alexandra Hudson coming on to talk about the concept of civility. And we're going to have Jennifer Burns come and talk about the life and times and thought of Milton Friedman. But today, just before Christmas, Joe, lovely to see you again. Great to see you, Andrew. And we not only are members of the same non-existent political party, but we're also beginning to look like each other, which must be really disappointing for you because you used to be a pretty handsome man. <laughs> <laughs> we all end up bald with gray beards, which, you know, not all of us, but uh, I'm happy. I'm okay. I, I'm, I'm at peace with it. You know, my twink days are over. <laughs> Apparently other people's are not. I see from the Senate hearing room. It was a rather cringe-worthy moment. But anyway, Joe, 
everyone knows you, but let, let me ask you as an old friend, tell us, tell us a little bit about where you actually come from. Where were you born when you grew up and how did you become Joe Klein? Well, I was, I'm a New Yorker and not a fashionable one, an out-of-borough New Yorker. I was born in Queens, in Rockway Beach, of rather exotic parentage. My grandfather on one side was the Jewish guy who kept the books for Tammany Hall, which was the <laughs> political machine. And my grandfather on the other side was a professional musician who played the drums in the big bands. From there, it was violin upward mobility and hurtled into the 60s, where I was obsessed, as so many were, with civil rights, the war in Vietnam, rock and roll, and, and marijuana. But along the way, something happened to me, and it was called reporting. I was working for an underground newspaper in Boston in the early 70s. This was the first big story that I ever covered was busing in Boston. And uh, I went in, into it a classic li liberal. You know, the government could do things to integrate us, to make lives better for, for black people and so on. But lo and behold, I went out on the streets and I couldn't find a single black parent who was in favor of busing. I could only find black parents who were pissed off because they had spent the last four or five years getting breakfast programs into their elementary schools and even more pissed off because they were sending their kids on buses to be, you know, have rocks thrown at rocks and bottles thrown at them by the heathens. Hmm. And so that changed my life. I stopped being a an identifiable anything politically. It all depended on the issues. And it also defined the rest of my now nearly 50-year career, which was I had to go out and do things. I had to go out and see them. I couldn't just take it on faith, on the faith of my reading. I had to actually talk to people. And uh, you mentioned before about my connections with the military. All of that happened after, 2000, after September 11th. I found myself having to go in bed with the troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I'm kind of limited in my ability to do that. I'm too damn old now, but I still try to think things through on issues as they come and also to call them as I see them, even when it is inconvenient, which it very often is in terms of friendships. There's a, there was a moment, I don't know whether you read James Bennett's uh, piece in the New York Times about liberal bias and illiberal bias. And one, I thought one of, the, one of the nicest lines in it was about the sense that he believed that you go into a situation not knowing what you're going to find and you have to be open to what you will see and report it. That that sort of doesn't matter where identity you're from, what identity the people you are engaging with are, but that naivete, that sort of, do I know, I know nothing? What can I learn? That is the essential quality of a liberal journalist in the old classical sense, liberal, as opposed to, I know what I already believe. Let me go into the situation and prove <laughs> that it's true. Well, yeah. And the last sentence of that paragraph was, James said, you don't have to lie. And uh, yeah, not only have I read it, but I've written about it. It's now kind of exploded on real clear politics. And, and this is a great example. I mean, 
of, of what I was saying before and what I take the time and, 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 and I, I use the opportunity to take the times to task for the things that the areas where I think it has really fallen down. I have no gripe with the Times foreign policy coverage. I think it has several of the best columnists on the planet, Tom Friedman, Brett Stevens, Maureen Dowd. Uh, I've written for the Times a lot. Pamela Paul was my editor at the Book Review, and she is now a great emerging you know, uh, voice of moderation on the op-ed page. But for 40 years, I, I watched the Times cover uh, domestic policy issues, especially those that involved race, crime, poverty, um, sexuality to a certain point. Uh, these are, to my mind, the major issues that divide the country right now. They are the fodder uh, from which the Trump movement grew. And in my experience, the time has been terrible on these issues. I mean, you will, it, it sometimes seems that we have explored in the times, we've explored the lives of every single last trans person in the metropolitan area. But, we've, but there's never an interview with a black minister who is uncomfortable with sexuality, who is against abortion and is really concerned about crime. I can actually guarantee you that those people exist. But you never read about them in the Times. Not only that, you, they, without understanding, you don't understand why they have the mayor they have. Um, you, 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 <laughs> that's right. I mean, you can't well, understand clearly, the politics of New York City. The reason why I, you know, I live in a black, upper class, black, integrated neighborhood now. I used to live in a working class, black neighborhood in Brooklyn. Spike Lee was my neighbor back then. And it's very clear that the reason why Eric Adams is the mayor of New York and not my, Maya Wiley, Maya Wiley, who was on MSNBC all the time, is because people are concerned about crime. Uh, very much so. Yeah. And also other things you won't read about in the Times, other hobby horses of mine over the years. There was an enormous, ginormous, earth shattering study a national study by Stanford University this year about the efficacy of charter schools. Mm. Uh, they do a lot better when it comes to educating poor black people, black kids. You didn't read a word about it in the New York Times. You read about it in the Wall Street Journal. And the reason why you didn't read a word about it in the New York Times was that the Times, uh, you know, domestic policy and especially labor reporters are in cahoots with the teachers' unions. Right. Uh, it seems to me that if you were actually progressive and actually cared about the education of young black kids, you might at least once do a story about the schools in the city of New Orleans, every last one of which is a charter school. Right. And well, you which might are wanna... improving. Yeah. There are, there's a whole bunch of areas in which that is the case. I mean, for example, you would think, I would think, that if you were a trans activist, for example, you would be extremely concerned to make sure that anything proposals for children are backed up with the most rigorous scientific uh, findings that have absolutely solid safeguarding in place, that have clinical trials already settled, that we've explored every possible aspect of this so that we don't make a mistake, so that we don't bring people in. Not only is that bad in itself, it hurts children, 
it's bad for the general cause of acceptance. And yet the Times, a group of Times journalists, journalists lobbied outside the Times to suppress actual good faith reporting on this topic. Really good pieces, thorough. It's a difficult topic. It's nuanced. It has lots of, lots of shades in it. They did some great work there, and the journalists themselves wanted to suppress it. This is what I don't understand. Well, I would argue that this is why we need an Andrew Sullivan in the world, because your work on this issue was, as your work on, on uh, gay marriage, absolutely courageous and groundbreaking. You don't see much courage in the New York Times. No. Uh, and, you know, and you, here's one thing that you will never see acknowledged in the Times, and also not by Democratic Party politicians. And it's this. Things are a lot better for black people now than they were 60 years ago. There has been incredible progress. Nearly half black families have incomes, middle class or higher. Still too many in, you know, still half that are either poor or working poor. That's not acceptable, but that's been amazing progress. Black women graduate from college at a greater rate than white men do. But if you were to acknowledge that, you would be going up against this kind of very straight-jacketed, intellectually limited theory, this binary theory that we're divided between colonizers and the oppressed. Blacks can only be oppressed in the New York Times. Yeah, it reduces, it reduces really complicated and fascinating issues. The other thing about it is it's, it's boring. It, it's, yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's much more interesting to figure out what have we gotten right and what have we gotten wrong. And it's only in that weighing of those two factors and, and looking at a whole variety of, 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 like, if you want to understand the place of African-Americans in contemporary America, you have to think about, to begin with, yes, history, absolutely. Yes, all the efforts of those people to disinter some of the worst parts of this country's racial history, in my view, are all salutary, all great, all important. So let us not forget that. I want to start by saying that it's an important perspective. You can understand America without its past, yes. But then look at other things. Look at culture. Look at the family. Look at economics. Look at poverty. Look at education. Look at parenting. There are any number of interesting, complicated factors interacting here that if you want to understand it, you need to understand all of them. And in order to solve it, you have to grapple with this complexity. But complexity is just not something... The left or the right at this point seems to be particularly concerned with. Um, I was very lucky in that regard, Andrew. My mentor on all this stuff was Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Yes, of course. And 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 he was a he was of the left. He was a you know he was in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, but then the left threw him to the curb because he told the truth truth about single-parent families. That's another thing you're not allowed to say in the New York Times anymore or in the Democratic Party, that two parents are usually better than one. Not always. There are a lot of, you know, a gazillion heroic single moms or single dads out there. But the sociology is irrefutable. No, it not only is it irrefutable, but it's clearly 
the one of the most important factors. When I, I, went, I went on Bill Maher once and, 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 and pointed out that if you look at Asian Americans and African Americans, two groups in society, and you see that Asian Americans have 70% of their kids born in wedlock and only 30% of African American kids are born in wedlock. And then you look at the outcomes in high schools. It, it, you should not be shocked that there is, that Asian Americans keep, in fact, are actually beginning to gain even further, especially on white, white people too, white kids too, because the structure is there to allow human ability to flourish. And that's what we want. We all want that. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that this not be seen purely as a racial issue because Daniel Patrick Moynihan became a pariah when he wrote a study about the Black family. It was published in 1965. He was working in the Department of Labor at the time. And, and the out-of-wedlock birth rate in the Black community at that point was about 24%. It's higher than that in the white community now. So these are not race-specific issues, although the legacy of slavery and the nature, the peculiar nature and really brutal nature of the American ver version of slavery certainly has had a lot to do with the distortions that you see in the black community. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't take a lot of human experience to understand that having a father intimately involved in a son's life caring about him, being there for him, even if it's not there every day, even if it's not massive, if he's just there, reliable in the house, you will do better mm -hmm. as a kid and especially boys. And, and, it's, and it, it's mothers are being heroic in all of this, but boys without fathers is a huge bloody problem in any human society, in any stage of development. And it's the other thing that you don't, of course, you're not allowed to discuss is that there are differences between boys and girls that require different approaches to things like discipline methods and, and rearing. I mean, and again, the abstract idea that we must ignore these differences as opposed to starting from the ground and asking how do we help these kids seems to me bizarre. Let me, let me ask just one thing. It, at the end of 2023... Trump is ahead of Biden in the polling and actually on the issues is, 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 is stronger than it would appear in terms of the head-to-head. -head. I don't think the readers of the New York Times, not to bash the Times constantly, but hey, why not? Really, have, if you'd read the Times all year, would you have any inkling of why that is true? In fact, you would have the opposite impact. You would have the sense that he would be at 10% because he's so hopelessly enmeshed in not only fascist rhetoric, but also legal and constitutional dead end. Tell me, are you shocked by how well Trump seems to be doing? Yes, actually, I am. Because if you look at the numbers overall, he has maybe a third of the of the Republican Party true believers, and then there are maybe ten percent who are never Trumpers, and the remainder are people who thought he was a pretty good president, think he's a terrible person, are looking for an alternative. But I have to say this: the the thing that has really impressed me with Trump this time is that he's become a really excellent politician. He really knows how to deal with the issues that cut. For example, let's take his statement that he would be a dictator on day one, right? Utterly brilliant. 
It existed on three levels. Number one, he was obviously joking and tweaking. He was tweaking Bob Kagan and the people on the left who were predicting a Trump dictatorship. Number two, he wasn't joking. He's going to do a lot of the stuff that he says, you know, that, that, that he's threatening. And, but number three, he was speaking in a very surgical political way. What were the two issues that he isolated, that he's focused on for day one? Number one was immigration, which is likely to be the most important, along perhaps along with abortion, but likely I mean, immigration is likely to be the most important issue in 2024. And number two was drill, 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 gas prices, inflation. Inflation is that very rare economic issue that actually impacts everybody. So on three different levels, Trump was communicating, and he knows how to do that. He does it constantly, stand back and stand by. And it seems to me that, number one, there's nobody in the Democratic Party who is communicating with that degree of sophistication. Number two, the levels of disdain and disgust with Trump, which I share. I've known the guy for 40 years. He's one of the most miserable human beings on the face of the earth <laughs> and most dangerous. But, you know, those who are angry with him, and I would include, you know, my never Trump friends in the Republican Party, people at the bulwark, some of them, who just cannot understand, who who just cannot understand why he's so successful. Yeah, and you're, you're right. I think the, the notion of his ability to get through to people on the issues they really care about is, is the key thing. I mean, for me, I mean, I keep coming back to immigration because for me it is, it is itself a sense that I have that the government is broken, that, that it, this is not an esoteric function of government to control borders. It's, it's a core function of government. If you don't, when he said, if you don't have borders, you don't have a country, I found deep inside nodding my head. And I felt a relief that someone said it so plainly, because it kind of focused you a little bit. And if a country can't actually control who comes in, 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 into it or leaves it, it really has lost the ability to be a country, an understandable unit. And the other thing I think that he he reflects, and, and one reason for his endurance is this, first of all, this resilience of his, this, it's this extraordinary invulnerability to, to being knocked. It, 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 it's really a, a, you sort of, it's Terminator mm -hmm. 3. I just like, when does this guy stop? Part of it, I think, is because he's fucked in the head, but, but part of it's also impressive, but also the sense that everything is chaotic. No one agrees with anyone. Everyone's shouting at everyone. No one's listening to anyone. And in that context, the appeal of someone to say, I'm going to take control and fi figure it all out is very strong. And it's my feeling is, in fact, the polls are slightly underrating his appeal next time around. But let's, let's compa compare that with Joe Biden, one of your oldest friends, I, I suppose. I mean, one of someone you've known forever. Well, he's, some, he's, he's someone I've known well, forever is getting to be a very long time <laughs> in, my, in my case. But I've known I've known Biden for a, a long time. Um, the man was I elected would, to the Senate in 1972. Like, right. That is how long he has been at the top of the American establishment. 
which is a staggering amount of time. And he looks it. I mean, I did you see him on the air with uh, Zelensky last week, their (laughs) joint press conference? Every time I see him staggering across the South Lawn of the White House on his way to Marine One, I have my heart in my throat, you know, and I wonder about the day when he's going to come out and do that in a walker. You know, it's he's too old for it. That's number one. But number two, he has bent a little bit, a lot, too much to the party's left. He did it on inflation. Larry Summers was right from the start that we didn't need the extra round of stimulus. That was analogous to what the left was trying to get Bill Clinton to do in 1993. And, and, and Clinton, you know, submitted a, 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 a tiny stimulus bill that he didn't really back. He made the he made, you know, people like Bob Reich and the rest of the left economists happy. I submitted it, but he didn't really he didn't really work that hard on it. And he what he what he really worked hard on was balancing the budget and, you know, keeping the markets happy. Biden didn't do that in this case. But to go back to your original... Let me, let me just, but, but on that point specifically, Joe, the other example was, of course, Obama in 08. And, and, and there yes. was, there he, then it, it seems that he, we did make a, a slight error, it, not a slight error, an understandable, but a real error, in, 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 in too much austerity for too long. And so there's, an over, there's another att- attempt to fight the last war with this one. So I'm just explaining why, in fact, there was a rationale uh, Although saying, we could have, yeah. we could have an argument. You and I actually might have an argument <laughs> that would that would be almost unprecedented. But, <laughs> but the fact is that slicing and dicing the size of the stimulus in two thousand nine, you know, is a matter of theory. Right. What what actually happened was that our almost entire economic system fell to ruins as a result of incredible corruption. Mm -hmm. And we got back on our feet in three or four years. Mm -hmm. Given the history of the world, that isn't even the blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would argue that two of the most impressive performance, economic performances I've seen during my lifetime were Obama's getting us out from under the 2008 collapse and uh, the the soft landing that Joe Biden and Jay Powell are managing now. It is it is a remarkable thing. Now, do you think though that at the same time that that soft landing might have been aided by the size of the stimulus? I mean, in, in some ways that that we're still riding a little bit on that that money pumped into the economy back then. Uh, I I think that. It it cut both ways. And right. one thing, it, you know, it gave people mo- some money to spend. And they, on on the other hand, though, it created the f- inflation that necessitated the rise in interest right. rates. I mean, right. you know, there are an awful lot of working class Americans out there who would like to buy a house, but can't because of those interest rates and blame Joe Biden for it. There's also something about the issues of inflation and immigration that the people feel frustrated because they can't really, it's not tangible to them. You know, it's things are happening and they seem out of control. They're aware that their lives are being slightly affected by this. In fact, not slightly, but very much affected. But they can't see how to stop it. And so if the government looks at that time as if it can't stop it, 
as if it's actually telling you, don't worry, inflation isn't a big problem. Don't worry, immigration is not a big problem. The border is secure. That the response to those anxieties, which is Biden telling you, you're wrong to be anxious, everything is fine, has been incredibly tone deaf and dumb. Absolutely. Absolutely. But they, they are in denial, you know, across a whole array of fronts, starting with the fact that the guy really looks old. He's not that much older than Trump. There are people who are older than Biden who look like spring chicken. He was, uh, he was, Willie Nelson isn't doing too bad at 90, but, but no, but Dolly Biden Parton is, Dolly Parton is great. I mean, there's, there are some amazing people, but he looked the other day, he looked, when he looked at the camera, first of all, he looks like he can't read the, 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 the wording. So his eyes are squinting. They look like two pistols in the snow. And, and consequence uh, of many, many bouts of plastic surgery. I well, think. that's the other thing, too. He's, he's, he's Botoxed up the wazoo, which means that his face doesn't move much anymore. And he, so he, he looks, and then there's a slight the mumbling, there's sort of a, a, a slight, slight draw. And then, and, then, and then there's also a slight belligerence behind it as well, occasionally kind of slight angry at being challenged, yeah. all of which. Right is perfectly understandable for an 81-year-old who's been through the middle of God knows how many times. Why can't he just say, okay, time for me to go? Because it seems to me, and let me put it this way, that the, the 2024 dynamic would be all, altogether changed if it was someone new against someone we've already had, if it's someone new against Trump, if it's someone who says, we don't want to go back to all of that shit, do we? Just, Can we just, just go forward? And Just as it will be changed if Nikki Haley manages, you know, to complete a three cushion bank shot and become the Republican nominee, which is not impossible at this point. It, I've covered for my sins. I covered 11 Iowa precinct caucuses. I covered 11 elections. And this is not over yet. It doesn't have to be over. It may be over, but it doesn't have to be over. And if Nikki Haley, who is surging in New Hampshire, does manage to overtake Trump, then you have Haley running against Joe Biden. And that looks very much like a romp to me. It does to me, too, for reasons that are. But what's interesting there, however, is that obviously Haley also represents a really different kind of party than Trump represents. And she seems particularly out of sync in terms of foreign policy and uh, does not seem to me to have internalized what Trump did. Now, what's interesting is the question is whether the Republican Party has been permanently shifted by Trump or whether it's a sort of slight phony shift that could revert back to a more traditional republicanism at some point. Now, what I'm thinking about in thinking about this is looking at what happened in Britain with Johnson and the Tories, which is that sure enough, yes, there was a sort of bank shot that, that Boris was able to do with Brexit, with immigration, with, with independence and so on, that allowed the Tories to quickly become a mass populist movement, really, in the, in the, in the late 20-teens, early 2020s. But once that collapsed, once Brexit was done, the Tories were sort of, and Boris didn't have the discipline or brains or, 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 or organizational skills to keep this going, the Tories are back in a sort of somewhat incoherent, old school, austerity, low taxes kind of weird mix. In other words, that the permanent shift on the right may not be as permanent as we think it might be. 
Right. I, 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 I agree with you about that on some issues, not on others. Okay. On the big issues. Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>